Let's bow our heads and invite God's Spirit to be with us as we open His Word. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for His robe of righteousness, which every one of us needs to be clothed in. May this morning, uh, each one of us search our own hearts as we look at this parable of Jesus, and we thank you for all of your goodness and your mercy towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to say uh, once again, uh, welcome to our guests that are here today. Thank you, those of you that filled cards in. At least we have an idea who is in, in our midst. And of course, everybody is welcome to stay a little bit longer this afternoon and eat with us if you're able to do that, and also stay for the Bible seminar this afternoon. Take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke. We're in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And what I'm going to speak about this morning is how to approach God. When you think of it, there's really not really anything more important than how to approach God. So we're going to look at that from the picture of a parable. Jesus used many parables. This one is in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And in the parable, we have a picture of two men. The two men are going to the temple to worship, to approach God, because God can be found at the temple. And that's where they're told to worship him. So they go along to the temple. Now, I want you to think of these two men just for the sake of simplicity, maybe to get the impact of the parable a little bit stronger as the good man and the bad man. And the good man would be considered the religious man. The religious man is a Pharisee. Now, earlier when I preached on this, I said, I said, what do you think of when you think of Pharisees? Do you think of good or bad? And my experience is most of us think of bad when we think of the Pharisees because some of the strongest criticism of Jesus was towards this group. But for the sake of this parable, I want you to think of the Pharisees as good. Now, good is in quotes, of course. Good is, is good because they are religious men. Good is good because they seem to be trying so hard to do the will of God. Good is good because they are praying in the temple, because they are fasting twice a week, because they are paying their tithes and offerings. So most people in first century, uh, the world of Jesus in the first century, the Bible world, or even in our day, day and age, think of religious people as good people, right? Yes, I think most of us do think that way. And the bad people, well, we all know who they are. That's pretty clear. That is the tax collectors... April 18 is coming up pretty quick. 18 this year. You get, you're, getting, you're getting some mercy from the IRS or from the government. I don't know who the mercy is coming from. So the tax collectors, the prostitutes, 
the drug addicts, we know who the bad people are, don't we? People that rip other ones off. But when we look at this parable, maybe it comes across just a little bit different in the mind of Jesus. So let's read it. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9, it says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Isn't it nice when you get a parable and it kind of clues you in where to go? It doesn't always work that way. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. In the King James, it might say publican. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Maybe we should pause there. Think a little bit about what's going on. What is in the mind of this Pharisee as he goes to worship? I could ask the same question of you this morning. What was in your mind this morning as you came to worship? But let's deal with, the, with this religious man, this Sabbath-keeping man. What's going on in his mind? Would you agree with some of these words that I wrote down from my little bit of research from my reading of Ellen White? Would you think the word self-exaltation fits? What about self-independence and self-sufficiency? What about the word pride? Self-trust, self-righteous. What about the issue of despising others? What about the issue of comparing yourself to others? Is this the right way to worship God? Some of the other statements I came across, he compared himself with others, he trusted in himself, he hoped to win commendation from both God and man, he was into mer a merit system. He wanted to recommend himself to God. He wanted people to think of himself as pious, to secure favor with God and man, self-interest, self-praise, a holier-than-thou attitude. In the text, verse 11, in some translation, it actually says he prayed with himself. Now, we're going to have Yvette leading uh, our midweek meeting on Tuesday, talking about prayer. That's interesting, praying with himself. Doesn't sound right somehow, does it? Conceited, self-satisfied, very good at recounting his good deeds in verse 12. And here's an interesting statement. Have you ever wondered how Ellen White uses the word soul? The word soul. I'm not talking about a fish now, S-O-U-L. She says his soul was not touched, that he was concerned with the outward only. 
And also she mentions the point that he was an accuser of the brethren and had the spirit of Satan. All right. If I threw it open to the congregation and if we had time, you could probably come up with some other words, phrases that would fit very well. But what we've seen up to now, we've read those three, three verses, I think it is, on, on what the Pharisee is saying. Doesn't look good, does it? Not the way to pray, not the way to worship. But the amazing thing is, a lot of people in Jesus' day did think that was the right way. And I really wonder if our society has changed that much. We certainly know that human nature has not changed in these years. Someone said, pride is like a beard. This is just for the man. It just keeps growing. The solution, shave it every day. A life that is wrapped up in itself makes a very small, what, package. I thought you'd know that one. Many Christians are like the woodpecker who was pecking on the trunk of a dead tree. Suddenly lightning struck the tree and splintered it. The woodpecker flew away unharmed. Looking back to where the dead tree had stood, the proud bird exclaimed, Look what I did! Pride. When I think of pride, I think of an issue that is very real to Seventh-day Adventist. The great controversy between good and evil. Between Christ and Satan. And it's more than an accident that some of us this morning were able to spend some time studying about this individual, Satan, who had the best of everything, and yet somehow rebelled against his creature. And sometimes I wonder, when I read a, a parable like this, and when I think of the society, the kind of society that Jesus was born into, whether the greatest danger is not for religious people. Is it possible that religious people, perhaps more than non-religious people, tend to rely on self more than trusting in God? Is that possible? Is it possible that in the Seventh-day Adventist church, a church that many of us look on as the remnant, that we can have a proud attitude that looks down on other Christians, looks down on other churches. I know that's a problem because you only have to read church history to know that whether it be Adventist history or Christian history or bib biblical history. There's something in the human heart, some seed of sin that always wants to compare itself with someone else. We grade on a curve, right? Does God do that? 
not if I read the Bible correctly, all have sinned. All continue to fall short of the glory of God. Is there anything wrong with praying? Is there anything wrong with fasting? Is there anything wrong with tithe paying? That's really not the issue. The issue is the mindset, the attitude of this man. And I, I look on this man as representative of many others. Jesus isn't just picking on one individual. Jesus is, ta is talking about how many people, human beings, think and act and behave. And I'm going to add, especially religious people. And so in one sense, we could say, well, there's a whole lot of good in being religious. And we could justify that. We could think of things in ways of justifying that statement. But we could also think of ways of saying there's a great danger for religious people. I sometimes wonder, some of us who have had tremendous experiences with conversion, We've come to Christ and we know for, for sure that he has saved us from sin. But is there not a danger, is there not a tendency that as we grow as a Christian, sometimes we don't grow. It's, it's almost as though we grow away from our dependence on God and tend to depend on something else. It could be the religious system that we find ourselves in, especially if we're born into one. So there's all sorts of red flags when I think of those types of things. But let's go on to something a little bit more positive. There's a man called a tax collector. Now, I don't know if you have good vibes or bad vibes about tax collectors. I suppose if your mom or dad is one, you think pretty good of them. I was just hearing on the news uh, very recently about an executioner. And I'm not sure if he had, I think he'd just written a book. So you may be reading about, uh, hearing about a book by an executioner here, here I believe, in, in the United States. And, um, and how his son would respond to him when he comes home from work. Daddy, did you have a good day today? How do you answer that? Do people, do little children of tax collectors ask those same kind of questions? Daddy, did you have a good day taking everyone's money today? I don't know. But verse 13 certainly seems a little bit more positive, so I'm moving on. The tax collector stood at a distance. Why? Because he didn't feel he was worthy to worship with the righteous people. Jesus said he wouldn't even look up to heaven. They normally prayed this way, standing with their arms out to heaven, maybe even with their eyes open for all I know. But he didn't do that. He beat his breast, said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do we do that anymore? Maybe we used to when we first came to God. You know, it seems to be a really healthy thing to, to look at yourself the way God looks at you. 
that seems to be very good in the Bible. Now, it is important to some extent the way that others look at you. It has some value. And I think it's really important to, to look at yourself the right way. But it looks like the right way has, should be God's way and not some other way. Because some other way will get us off track. So if it's the way of Hollywood, well, there's no hope there. If it's the way of entertainment today, forget it. But it could even be the way of your parents is not the right way. I will be going back to England to conduct a funeral, and I will be amongst people who don't see things the way I do. Radically different than the way I do. So what do you say to those people? Because the majority of the service is what I'm going to say. So if you're going to pray anything for me, pray for wisdom to know what to say to the unbeliever. And also pray that God's Spirit just zaps them with an English two-by-four because he really needs to get their attention, right? People who are dead in sin, who are in darkness, need the light of God. God has to bring his light in somehow, some supernatural way. It isn't going to be because I just say or do the right thing. Anyway, this tax collector seems to be on the right track, according to Jesus. He wouldn't look up to heaven and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Romans 3, very, very basic teaching in Scripture. All have sinned, continue to sin, to fall short of the glory of God. Think of yourself that way every day of your life. And that seems to be like a healthy check and balance for our growth. And then, of course, in verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you that this man, which man? Which man was justified? The tax collector was justified rather than the other went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What does humility mean? Well, Corrie Ten Boom, who is one of my favorite characters, was once asked if it was difficult for her to remain humble. And her reply was this. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises, do you think that for one moment it ever entered the head of the donkey that any of this was for him? And she continued, if I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in his glory, I will give him all the praise and all of the honor. Corrie Ten Boom had a sense of humor. And God used her in a very wonderful way. Andrew Murray puts humility this way. Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me. And when I am blamed or despised, it is to have a blessed home in the Lord, 
where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. The humble person is not one who thinks meanly of himself. He simply does not think of himself at all. The story is told of two brothers who grew up on a farm. One went away to college and earned a law degree and became a partner in a prominent law firm in the state capital. The other brother stayed on the family farm, and one day the lawyer came and visited his brother, the farmer, and he asked, why didn't you go out and make a name for yourself and hold your head up high in the world like me? And the brother pointed and said, see that field of wheat over there? Look closely, only the empty heads stand up. Those that are well filled always bow low. Someone else has said the branch that bears the most fruit is bent the lowest to the ground. Now in this beautiful parable of Jesus, and you can read many things into parables, I realize that. It also uses a key word, which is justification. Justification is a very important word in Christian circles. You'd be amazed at the amount of debate that goes on around that word. Usually around the Apostle Paul's writings, Romans, Galatians, books like that. But I want you to notice that justification, before it is a Pauline word, it is a Jesus word. Jesus says that one of these men is justified and one of these men is not justified. The justified man is what most of us would have thought as the bad man. Tax collectors were despised. They literally were in the category of the dregs of society, the prostitutes, because they sided with the enemy government, the Romans. And not only did they get money for the Romans, they took their slice too from their own people. So they ripped off their own kind. Remember Zacchaeus up the tree? Do you think that little fellow was liked? He was hated. He was despised, but not by Jesus. When repentance came into that man's life, when he saw his need of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. People would listen. They'd want to shut their ears. Has Jesus lost his mind? Tax collectors don't get saved. Well, this parable says they do. They get justified. What does that mean? What does justified mean? Tell me. Speak to me. Forgiven, somebody says. Forgiven. We're stuck on forgiven. The needle is stuck. Just as if I'd never sinned. So they're sinless. Some says at that point they're sinless. 
Justification is a legal term. Always remember that. And it's always to be used in relationship to somebody. And here we're talking about God. So God is the one who says who is in the right with him, right? Because he's God after all. He has that prerogative. So when the Bible says that a man or a woman is justified, as Jesus says this tax collector is justified, another way of, of with, there's other words we could use, we could say forgiven, we could say pardon, we could, last week we talked about, in fact, somebody, I believe it was Jake, says, well, what about this imputed righteousness? There's other terms that we can use. Uh, I tend to use a phrase, they're right with God. They're in a right relationship with God. It is not based on anything that they've done. Here we have two men praying. Is, is the tax collector justified because he's praying the right way? And we're justified only because somebody died in our place. Who is that? Well, of course, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And how hard it was for God to teach a nation like the Israelites the, the importance of this. Even though they had this amazing sacrificial system where you would always have to find the innocent substitute to die in your place, and you would take the life of that animal, and the priest would take the blood and sprinkle it in this place where God was, which was the temple or the sanctuary, tabernacle. Um, you think you have to get the point when it's so obvious that something has died in your place, right? But how many of them really missed it? So justification, before they're justified in a wrong relationship with God, being justified by faith, they are in a right relationship with God. One statement that Ellen White says, it is the work, justification by faith is the work of God, laying the glory of man, the righteousness of man, the good works of man in the dust. Why in the dust? Because man's works are always less than perfect. God demands perfection. Only one individual has managed to achieve that, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the glory of man is laid in the dust and doing for that which is not in his power to do for himself. When men see their own nothingness, which fits in very well with this tax collector, right? They are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I don't know about you, I find this so exciting. I find it so encouraging to imagine that I have the privilege of being paid, not, not a whole lot, but being paid to teach this stuff. It blows my mind, and I've been a pastor for quite a while now, and that you and I have the privilege of leaving this building today, going out, where, whatever our world is, the nursing home or wherever we find ourselves, and explaining this in as simple a way as we know how how people can get right with God. See, that's what I'll be doing at that funeral in England. There's lots of nice things I can say about my mother, and I'm sure I'll say some of that. They'll be expecting that. What they will not be expecting is the other stuff. 
the gospel stuff, the Jesus stuff. Listen to this as we wrap up here. The enemy of man and God, who is that? Well, he's the one we were studying about this morning. Satan. The enemy of God and man is not willing that this truth, justification by faith, should be clearly presented. Now, my sermon this morning was not on justification by faith, but the last few minutes were on that. Did we try and make it clear? I mean, we're searching around for words, maybe illustrations, metaphors, that will make it clear to people. For he knows that if the people receive it fully, if they grasp this the way they're supposed to grasp this, if they can grasp this like this self-righteous Pharisee Paul caught it, then Ellen White says, his power will be broken. Now, obviously, as a pastor, I want the power of Satan to be broken in your life and in my life. Who wouldn't want that in their right mind? And if Satan can control minds so that doubt and unbelief and darkness shall compose the experience of those who claim to be the children of God, he can, he will overcome them with temptation. So one of the secrets, maybe the main secret, in living a powerful, holy, Christ-like, righteous, obedient, whatever other word you can come up with, good works life, is to grasp this concept of righteousness or justification by faith. And this humble tax collector, who everyone seemed to despise except Jesus, Somehow, some way, seems to have caught it. Uh, Walter loaned me uh, a brief video. I have to be careful of telling you what it's about because we may be showing it pretty soon in church here. And there's nothing worse than somebody grabbing a hold of the punchline before you actually see this, this thing. I've told you the illustration before in, in another sermon, but it's about... Um, it's about a Christian man, a sociologist, uh, late at night in a cafe and a group of prostitutes come in. Some of you can, maybe can remember the illustrations for after all, you remember all my sermons so well, don't you? And if you ever hear Tony say it, he, on the DVD he is interviewed, but I'm not thinking that way. If you ever hear him preach it, it's very powerful. If he can weave it into a lecture, into a sermon, and do it, you know, live. It's very, very powerful. And so, and so Tony's in there. He's the sociologist, and uh, these prostitutes come in, and somehow, someway, he finds out that one of these ladies has a birthday coming up. Remember the story? Yes. Beginning to remember it. And it seems that nobody has ever celebrated her birthday. We know that a lot of people who find themselves in, in prostitution is because they've been abused as children. That's why we shouldn't judge. We don't know. We've not studied this. Many of us have never stood in their shoes. How do we know? But God knows. He stood in their shoes. He knows. 
Anyway, in this story, Tony said, let's throw a party for this lady. Tony calls her Agnes, probably not her real name. And the owner of the cafe probably thinks he's just totally crazy. But these women seem to come in there every night. Is she going to come in on her birthday? Yes, she'll be in here. We'll throw a party. So they all agree Tony's going to pay the expenses. So they decorate the cafe. The owner bakes the cake. And then everything is set for Agnes to come in. She's clueless about what they're going to do. And as you see it on the DVD, they come into the room and the other prostitutes push Agnes a little bit to the front. And there she sees the cake with the candles burning. And she is in total shock that anyone would care enough to celebrate her birthday and then to bake her a cake. Well, that's icing right there. And it kind of ends up that she takes the cake and goes and shows her mother, I believe. Don't know why. And when Tony kind of interprets this true event in his life, he says, that's what the church should be. Even on the DVD, they ask, well, what kind of church do you belong to, Tony? He doesn't tell him he's a Baptist. That's not going to help anyone. He says, I belong to a church that throws parties for whores. And that's so hard for us as Christians to wrap our minds around. But that's the heart of Jesus. And the sooner we realize it, the better and the more glory and the quicker we will advance his kingdom. You want to have a church filled here? Some of you do, some of you don't. But those of you who do, we have to get out in society and we have to do simple acts of kindness to people. Leave the explaining of theology to me if you have to. In some ways, it's not the most important. It is important. Oh, it's important. If you ever have to fight heresy, you know how important truth is. But the what we do, the way we act, is the acid test of our Christianity. And some of you who struggle in witnessing and just are petrified about knocking on someone's door, well, hey, here's the good news. You don't have to do it that way. And those of you that are willing to do it that way, praise God for you. But we're not all created the same way. But everybody can do something to touch someone else's life, right? And that's the fruit that we can bear that God will expect when we appear before him on judgment day. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you so much for his stories and his parables, but more than that, the life that he lived. We can't live that life, Lord, in our own strength. We're bankrupt. But by realizing that we're sinners in your sight, and by saying like this tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is the way we can be brought into a right relationship with you. 
Lord, I pray from the bottom of my heart that every one of us, every boy and girl, every man and woman in this room today will understand the importance of what has just been said. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.